Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. At Police Care Australia, we know that happy cops make the world a safer place. We understand only too well the threats and pressures cops face every day and the toll it takes. That's why we've established a health and wellbeing hub or a place with resources where former and current police members, families and friends can get help and assistance. It's an online portal where you can get support and counselling with professionals that understand police. Police Care Australia is a joint initiative between the National Police Memorial and the Police Federation of Australia. You can find out more details about Police Care Australia at their website, www.policecareaustralia.org.au. I first met Esther Mackay in 2005 at a writers' festival. We were both authors talking about our new true crime books. Esther's a former New South Wales Police Force Detective Senior Constable whose life journey has been fascinating. She's also a very good friend and an author of two true crime books, no less. Esther worked for 17 years in the job, specialising in forensic services. She entered that tough, male-dominated world, determined to hold her own. But it took a huge cost. Esther was discharged from the police force, hurt in the line of duty, and began a very different journey. Today, she's a consultant manager of Police Care Australia and the program develop manager for the Quest for Life Foundation. Hi, Esther, and a big warm welcome to the Crime Couch. Hi, and thanks, Rochelle. What inspired you, Esther, to join the job at a very young 21 years of age? Originally, I actually wanted to be a solicitor and I didn't have enough marks in my HSC to get into uni. So I thought policing might be a good idea to try and get into prosecuting or some sort of law. And that was my reason for applying originally. But of course, it changed after once I got into the police. And you initially had a bit of difficulty getting in, didn't you? Because of your height? I did, actually. In those days, there was a lot of restrictions, especially on women, and you had to be five foot six regulation height, and I was slightly under it. So when they measured me, they said, no, you're only five foot five and a half, you're not tall enough. And I went down to the um, the desk in the police headquarters as I was leaving, and the, the old sergeant on the desk who'd seen me on the way up, he said, oh, what happened, love? Why are you coming out? And I said, well, I'm not tall enough. He said, oh, bugger that. He said, go down to the domain, hang by your legs and come back in half an hour, you'll be stretched. <laughs> so I was actually working at the, um, uh, as doing sort of press at the time, and they had to press um, the uh, gym down in the bottom of the building. So I went down there and I said to the guy, look, I need to be stretched. <laughs> he looked at me like I was crazy. And I explained why. And he said, oh, okay, he said, we can do that. So I got on the floor and he showed me all these exercises. And then he said, right, you're stretched now. He said, but the only problem is, he said, you can't put those high heel shoes on because that'll concertina your spine back down. So I had to walk across Hyde Park in bare feet. <laughs> and you got in. Well, I got back there and the, the sergeant said, oh, good on your love, up you go, you'll be right. So I went up to the level 
And they said, oh, rolled their eyes at me, you know, oh, God, why are you back? And I said, oh, I'm taller now. <laughs> and they said, all right, then, we'll, we'll, we'll have a go. We'll have, see what you are. And they measured me and they said, no, you're a bit taller, but you're still not quite there. And they asked, so, you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself. And I said, well, I did win a Rotary Youth Leadership Award. And they said, OK, you're in. <laughs> what was policing like for women in those days when you joined, Esther? Well, I didn't know any different and I went to a private girls' school and we were told we could do anything we wanted. So to me, it was just, I just got in there and did what everybody else was doing. So the only thing that I noticed um, the first uh, probably couple of weeks when I went to Camelotown Police Station after I'd graduated, I was very quiet and very timid in those days. And I had heard a few people said that we that they didn't want women there. There was two of us that were the first women to be stationed at the uh, at that particular station for five years, and there was a, a bit of unrest about it, and uh, that was a bit unnerving. And then after a couple of weeks, quite a few fellows came up and said, "Look, we're really sorry. We we really shouldn't have said that because we love having you here." and um, which is the other one that, that came with me at the same time, Sharon, uh, which has fitted in really well. We just got stuck in and did the job. Just take yourself back to the first memories that you had when you joined the police service in New South Wales. When was the first time that you actually saw a dead body? It was actually the first week because we do what's known as induction. So a sergeant takes us around to all the different stations and introduces us to all the different um, areas in policing, like detectives and highway patrol, that sort of thing. And one of the parts of that was to go to the morgue. So we went to the morgue at Camden, which is um, in those days was just a small morgue. And when we when we got into the morgue, the morgue attendant said that, oh, oh, a couple of young'uns here, Sarge. Oh, well, that's great because I've got a baby in fridge too. I'll, I'll bring that one out. And at that minute I remembered that I had a friend actually giving birth in the hospital and I thought to myself oh my god I hope it's not her baby I hope something hasn't gone wrong so I think that was probably the first time I realized that your life actually is impacted by what you're seeing and then he brought this little tiny bundle in white sheets out and opened it up and I think he thought it was a bit a bit of shock value for us which in fact it probably it was but it just looked like a doll, you know. It was it, it it was quite confronting, but we all took it in our stride, and you know that was the first time I I actually had seen a dead person. Well, you don't really have the avenue to be anything other than be not vulnerable. Exactly. I think because you're so young, you don't really know what's going on, and even in those days, people weren't really that in touch with their emotions. So. I learned very, very early on just to cut your emotions off and just get on with the job and not think too deeply into it. But I, I think one of the things that sort of struck me was that my mum was a social worker at the time and she'd always sort of talked about the difficulties of adolescence and growing up. And so she would often ask me questions after I'd come home from a difficult job and having her to assist me was a real help and a, a real blessing, actually, without me really knowing it at the time. It was like a debriefing. Yeah, exactly. For most of your police career, Esther, you worked in forensic investigation. Now, did you choose this path or did it choose you? I chose it. I Once I got into the police, I realised very quickly that general duties, as though I, I loved it, it wasn't for me long term. I, I'd, I'd been bashed up, I'd had broken ribs and there'd been incidents. A lot of, we were working in a very dangerous area, so it was, it was constant, it was hectic. 
it was dangerous. I'd been in twice, I'd been in incidents where at domestic violence situations where there was offenders with weapons. So I, I just I just found that it was not really for me. I didn't want to do it as much as I liked it at the time. So I don't know why I decided to get into forensics, but at secondary training, one of the forensic officers came just to describe the different areas of policing. And I found, he put all these most, you know, gruesome photographs on this big screen and was showing, you know, how that related to the cause of death and this sort of thing. And I remember thinking, that's absolutely fascinating and that's what I'm going to do. So it was at that point that I decided to pursue that area of policing. You were highly credentialed in the job. What were some of your areas of expertise? So in forensics, I was a crime scene examiner. I, was, I had uh, expertise in disaster victim identification. So at that time, we had the two really horrific bus crashes with 30-plus uh, people killed at once. And then we had the Newcastle earthquake. So I actually did do DVI duties at the Newcastle earthquake. But as, as my time went on, I... I don't know why I became an expert in stolen vehicles. For some reason, I've always loved vehicles. I've always loved cars, but um, and I've got a lot of mechanics in my my family background. Uh, and my daughter's a mechanic now, so I don't know what that is. But I seem to get all these vehicle jobs, and I was good at it. And it was we used to chemically etch them, and we used oxyacetylene on them, and to enhance obliterated numbers, that sort of thing. And I was approached by a mechanic who worked at the vehicle examination section and he said to me, let's get a new unit started just looking at stolen cars. And I'd worked on some really, really big car rackets, interstate ones as well. And actually, one of them I had a contract out on me because it was very much involved in money laundering and drugs as well. So it was pretty heavy stuff. And I ended up pursuing that line and ended up working stolen vehicles for many, many years. So I had expertise there and then I moved into training and research and I wrote the some of the curriculum documents for the Diploma Applied Science and actually two of the subjects which was vehicle examination and or vehicle identification and forensic science and then I moved into document examination section which was the last part of my career so I've, I have expertise in documents as well. And what was a typical day for you involving crime scenes Esther? Well, there was never a typical day. One of the things I liked about the job was that it was so varied and so different. And we were on call usually every two to three weeks for seven days straight. And we'd just get call in the middle of the night. So it could be a culpable drive or a fatal car accident. So you'd be out on a car scene, out on a road scene, measuring and taking photographs and working out where the point of impact was. Or you could be at a plane crash. In this area that I was working at, there was we had quite a few of those actually because we had a, a light, an airport airstrip there with light planes. You could be at a, a murder, domestic violence situation, could be looking at a stolen vehicle. There was just so many different aspects of it and so many areas to conquer. But I always found that it was exciting and interesting. And the hours were quite long as well. So you could sometimes go from one job to the other. I mean, I remember one night I got called out at midnight to a fatal car accident. And then I got called back out at 5am in the morning to uh, a gassing death, um, death by suicide in a car. And then I was still in bed actually later that day because I'd been up all night. I got called to a murder. So it just, yeah, it's just one thing after the other. And there's a lot of court matters. I really quite liked doing the in-depth dis- statements for court and actually getting my teeth right into the research and the the, produ- the production of the actual evidence to assist the families to know what had actually happened. So that, you know, th- that that was another side of the job that I quite I quite liked doing. I know we've talked about this before in when you're working in the job that 
There were a lot of cases. There were a lot of bodies. The hours were long. It was relentless. When did you start to feel that you were starting to unravel? It it sort of started to happen. I mean, my boss at the time, who was amazing, he was so supportive. He said to me, around about the three-year mark, you'll start to have some issues. And I thought, that's not going to happen to me because I don't have any mental health in my family. That was how naive I was. I didn't realise that it was actually going to be caused by what I was seeing. I thought oh, it must be something to do with the flaw in your in your makeup. But he said to me, you know, you'll start avoiding the workplace. You know, you might be a bit teary. You might be having problems with facing some of your photographs, that sort of thing. And sure enough, around about the three-year mark, that's exactly what happened. I started to I remember I did a really terrible shocking incident where two boys were killed and found inside the pheasant's nest bridge and it was a protracted long investigation it was a lot of media around it a lot of pressure to get some answers and the photographs came back from the day that I'd done the scene and I said to my colleague he was sort of waving them around here's the photos and I said get them away from me I don't want to see them and he said what what do you mean I said just get them away I don't want to look at them and he said oh okay I'll put them in a a brown sort of envelope that's not clear because all our photos were in a, like a clear plastic envelope and and I said I don't and I get them get them out of here I don't care where you put them he said oh, well I'll put them in the file you know, we've got to keep them and I said I don't, I don't really care what you do with them and that I thought, afterwards I thought oh gee that was that was a bit strange and he said to me you know why were you saying that and I said I just didn't want to see them at that point and then after that actual scene a few weeks later I was having dinner and there was a candle on the table it was quite dark and I was eating a rack of lamb and the bones in the rack of lamb looked like the bones of one of these deceased persons at the morgue and I just went to pieces. I just it, it just flew out of my body. I was just shaking, I was crying. I pushed the plate away. I didn't want to see it. That was yeah, I wasn't sleeping well. I was waking up during the night couldn't get back to sleep. Very teary. I, I didn't want to go to work. I was avoiding work, but yet I would push myself to go. Um, I was puffing on a cigarette in the car on the way home and I wasn't a smoker. Uh, I felt like drinking. Uh, alcohol was, even though I wasn't really a big drinker at the time, alcohol was what was de-stressing me um, when I wasn't on call. Yeah, all sorts of behaviours were starting to come out, nightmares. But I, of course, at the time I pushed it aside. And I did speak to my boss at that time and uh, said to him, look, I'm, I'm just not really coping. And he said, look, Either I let the welfare unit know and they'll probably want to transfer you out or you can take a week off annual leave and get yourself sorted out. So I decided to take the week off annual leave because I didn't want to lose my job in forensics. I loved it. And I'd spent a lot of time mastering it and the last thing I want to do was move into another area. So I took a week off. I went to Tasmania actually with my family. And during that week, I mastered being numb. And I came back and even my young colleagues that were my age, they said to me, it's not the same Esther anymore. And I was just this numb, robotic, and I got through another 10 years or so of policing like that because I just, I don't know, I just shut down. And that was how I coped. I was going to say, that was your coping strategy. How lonely was this time for you? Did you, apart from your boss giving you some support, you were doing a lot of this work by yourself, one up. Yeah, it was. It was a lonely time. My marriage had broken up as well. That had only lasted three years, so I was living alone. It was a lonely place to be because you didn't feel like you could really talk to anyone. I wasn't even really telling my mum much about it. But what I've learnt later in life, I did a program at Quest years later when I just wasn't thriving. 
I learned that my second nature is because my parents were both business people and had businesses that I learned to do everything alone. So I walked to school from the age of five and let myself in from the age of five. So I was a latchkey kid and that set me up for doing everything alone in life and having difficulty actually sharing my feelings with other people because I didn't want to rely on anyone because I never had anyone to rely on. So inadvertently, I went into a career where I worked alone and that was where I felt comfortable and safe. So when I learnt that later, it actually told me a lot about myself and I've had to really pull myself up on it at times when I'm doing everything myself, much to my own detriment. I'll pull myself up and say, oh, there you go again, you're doing it yourself, you need to ask for help. So it's little things like that that without you even being aware of it, you start to work in a way which is just your go-to for coping mechanisms. That's the way you do it. And that's very natural. And I think people inside and outside of the job do the same sort of thing. It's just a way of coping, as you've said. Looking back at yourself then, how would you describe yourself then, Esther? I was pretty naive. I was really committed to the job. I was very, very loyal to policing. I was, I mean, I talk about this, you know, you, I was brainwashed in the, in, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, but when you join the police or any sort of hierarchical organisation, it is a type of indoctrination where they indoctrinate you, indoctrinate you into this special family. So now you're special, you're in this family, this is your loyalty is going to be to this family, you're going to always put them first, and then they're going to look after you, which is actually not the case with what happens, you know, later on. So I was quite institutionalised. And I think I went through my career very much that way. But I think that I was I was growing as a person, but I've heard often by police saying things like, when I joined the job at 19, well, actually I was 21, so I had a little bit more experience under my belt. You stop maturing as a person because you're so indoctrinated into this way of life that you cut all your emotions off and you stop growing as a person. So I think I was very sort of stunted in that regard where I was just very robotic and doing it the best way I could without allowing things to sort of perviate me and and not too much overthinking about, oh gosh, you know, this is actually difficult or it's a, it's a bad day today when I'm seeing some really gory things or whatever, but just, yeah, stiff up a lip, get on with it. You were diagnosed with PTSD, Esther, and you were discharged from the job. In those days, mental health issues were perceived very differently from today. How did you deal with that and and being discharged from a job that you loved? It was tough. It was really hard. I, I found it difficult to come to terms with it. I didn't want to believe it, but I realised I, I actually went to the police medical officer um, when I was still working at the later stages and I said to him, the reason why I'm here is because I, I feel like I'm drinking too much. And he said, oh, well, you, know, you know, how much are you drinking? And I said, well, get home from work and I'm having uh, maybe a couple of glasses of wine, a couple of bourbons at night. And I said, I, I just don't think that's healthy. He said, look, you know, that if, if that's what you're doing to cope, he said, it's perfectly fine and just keep doing it. So that was not what I wanted to hear. But in those days, like you say, um, the whole mental health thing was very unknown. Nobody really knew what PTSD was. I certainly didn't know what it was. And when I finally got a diagnosis, I just, I went to my GP actually, and I said, I'm having all these morbid thoughts. And it came about when I was pregnant with my first child, I would hear something on the radio, say there was a, you know, a a sort of very prominent person that had died and there was going to be a state funeral. But I would think of that person in a, in a coffin. I could see their body lying dead in a coffin. And then when I was pregnant, my husband at that time brought home a, 
a little beautiful little cane wicker basket which was a bassinet and I said to him and because you know, normally those bassinets have like the frilly things around them and everything but it, it was just the plain bassinet it was a second-hand one I looked at it and it was in the foyer I said get that out of here I said that's that looks like a coffin to me and he just sort of looked at me and said what do you mean I said that looks like a coffin I said a baby's going to die in that and I thought to myself, oh, God, like, what am I saying? Why am I thinking this? And we ended up, uh, I bought a frilly little thing for around it and dressed it all up, and then it was okay. But I had this thing in my head, well, what if that is a coffin? So things like that were starting to creep into my life. And I went to my GP and I said, told him what had happened. And he said, oh, yes, he said, I had a doctor in here who was a pathologist, and he said he was, you know, washing up with his family, and he was drying a knife, and he, had, he, was, he was holding the knife, and he was thinking to himself, I could do some damage with this. And then all of a sudden he was quite shocked. And uh, he said, so I know what you're talking about. Um, and he said, I went to this conference the other day and there was this amazing psychiatrist, this Dr. Selwyn Smith, um, who's come back from Canada and he's specialising in PTSD. He said, I think you should go and see him. And I was one of his first patients. And he ended up being the doctor for police. And he diagnosed me with PTSD. So it was hard to put those papers in when I was trying to get discharged from the police in the end because I, I ended up, I was having an argument with the police medical officer. I went to see him and he said, you just get back to general duties. And I said, well, I, I don't think I can do that. And he said, well, give me your papers. You've already made your mind up. And he snatched them out of my hand. So him and I were having a tug, a tug of war over his desk and in the end, he, he won and, and had the, the documents. And I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I burst into tears and ran out of there and rang my mother when I got home hysterical because I was so distressed about losing my career. And it took a lot of getting used to, to or even not getting used to, but getting my head around. Not so much telling people that I had PTSD, but losing my career in that way was just devastating. You spent 17 years in the New South Wales Police Force. What are the, some of the achievements now that you are proud of? Oh, look, you know, I've, I've come to meet many families that I knew in the work that I did. I'm friends with some of them on Facebook, which, you know, it's, it's amazing that it's been so helpful for them to actually to, to get to meet me, to know that I was the one that respected their loved one at that terrible time and gave the dignity to that person that they deserved. And being able to let the families know this is what's happened. You know, some of them don't really want to know the fine detail, but others do. They want to know those things. They want to know the evidence. They want to know exactly what happened. And being able to give them that information, which is really putting them at rest that you'll never get over losing that loved one, of course, but understanding why it happened I mean I remember I went to a cot death once and the the baby had sadly got its head caught between the actual the side of the cot and the base of the cot because it was an old-fashioned cot that had been in the family for years but one of the pins had come out and the baby had tried to crawl out from underneath and got caught and I got outside into the car with my colleague it was actually his job Shane I was working with and I said to him I think we need to go in and explain what happened because they thought it was a cot death like no there'll never be a reason or rhyme or just uh, why did it happen sort of thing I said I think we need to go back in and tell them and he said I can't do it and I said well what, what if we do it together so we went in together and we asked them to come into the house I was sitting on the front step crying we said come into the house we need to show you something and we showed them the cot and the look on their face of relief oh my god that's what happened 
We didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't our fault. And those cots were recalled because of that. That sort of thing. That That's given me a lot of, just a lot of comfort. And, it, it, you know, it's it's what I look back on when I think about the hard times in the job that I was actually able to make a positive difference in some small way to the families. What has policing taught you, Esther, about people and about life? I think I've got a very broad view on life and people and really not to judge. When I was in the police force, I was quite judgmental and I realised later that you never know the full story behind what's happened to people and I look at people very differently now. I mean, when I was in a program at Quest working as coordinator on our Moving Beyond Trauma program, we had a, a man there who was what we know as a vexatious complainant. And he used to go back to the stations all the time wanting to complain about things. And he'd, he'd actually get police to chase him down in his car and all the, and then he'd always get arrested. What it was, he'd actually been the victim of child sexual abuse and he just didn't know how to tell anyone. And what he was doing was crying out for help. And if, if someone had just said to him, what's happened to you, mate? Rather than, what have you done? Um, which is how we look at crime someone might have picked up that it was a cry for help. And I learned so much from that man. And he wanted to write a letter um, to Karen Webb, the commissioner. And I said, write her a letter. I said, write her a letter and explain what's happened to you. It meant so much to him that he was able to explain that. And we talked it through and we sort of put it where it needed to go. But it's people teach me a lot about policing that I can see now. And, And I really do try not to judge people. I try and look at the big picture and try and work out, well, I haven't walked in their shoes, so, you know, maybe there's some things that have happened to them, which is the reason why they're like that now. That's an extraordinary reflection and a a genuine emotional intelligent response, Esther. Finally, how would you sum up now your police career? How would you sum up the time that you spent in the New South Wales Police Force? I had an incredible career. I loved it. I'm proud of it. I still reflect on it all the time. I've got some amazing mates and friends. The friendships have have really dug deep and I still have a lot of relationships with with police and people that I met along the way. And because of the fact that I did get PTSD at the end of my career and I spoke out about it and I wrote about it in my book, it's allowed me to do this incredible work with police and helping them with their mental health. So that alone, it's it's really strange how that's how my life's turned out. But I've actually done more work for police since I left than what I did in the in the police. And that there was a bigger picture for me. For some reason, I was meant to go down the mental health road and be a support person and a crisis intervention person um, for police and 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 their families and be available um, 24 hours a day. I mean, I do it with my my charity that I run, Police Based Trauma Support Group, and I've been doing that for 20 years. And I've had some incredible opportunities come my way because of my police career and because of what I've done since. So it's all—it's the whole thing really policing for me has been a blessing and I still feel like a cop, so it'll never leave me. <laughs> Esther, we're certainly going to be continuing that conversation in our next interview, but thank you very much for sitting with me today on The Crime Couch. Thanks, Rochelle. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch.